Well, it's good to be in the Lord's house on his day to worship him and to sing these praises, to hear his word read, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and now to have the privilege of hearing the word of God opened up and preached for us. Today we'll be looking at Psalm 50, Psalm 50, verse 15. Last week we covered an entire psalm about the same length. Today I'm focusing on one verse, though I will give an overview of the whole psalm because the one verse is magnified in light of the context in which it appears. The title of the message is Deliverance Promised in the Day of Trouble. We live in a world that is full of sorrow disappointment and grief. This is commonplace for us. If it's, if it's not hitting you right now, just wait a little while. Pretty soon there will be a trial. There will be a difficulty of some type or another. In the book of Job, in chapter 5, it says, for man is born for trouble just as sparks fly upward. And so just as you would go camping and have a campfire and those sparks would just go up, they're just randomly, uh, continuously flying in the air, so too are the troubles that we experience in this world. These troubles take on uh, various uh, manifestations, whether it's in our bodies, cancer, disease, arthritis, migraines, various health-related afflictions, or if it maybe is in your mind where you're struggling with depression and discouragement with what God is doing in your life, or maybe you're burdened by your own sin and your own sin is just plaguing you, or, or interpersonal relationships, the state of conflict, and, and sometimes even amongst a husband and a wife, right? The closest relationship there, it just fractures everything so that everything is not right. Maybe it's a relationship with your child, uh, you know, it's broken and, and it's, it's, it brings trouble. Jesus himself was not exempt from difficulties during his earthly ministry. He was fully acquainted with the infirmities of which we are familiar. All of this trouble for us who are sinners, simply put, largely results from sin. Those broken relationships, those interpersonal relationships, even depression of not thinking biblically as we ought The good news is is that Jesus was mistreated, and he died for our sins. And so suffering and trouble is something that, that we should not run from. We should embrace it because it's an opportunity to call upon God. In fact, we're commanded in, in chapter 50 of verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. Suffering is the badge of the true Christian, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. You might remember in the Gospel of John, in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus tells the disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Now, the context is interesting when you think about what is going on here. Right, The foot washing just happened. This is the night he's going to be betrayed. He's more or less told them, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. If there's ever a time to have your hearts be troubled, it's now. When your leader, your, 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 the, the, your savior, is telling you that he's going to be mistreated and die. That's a time for your hearts to be troubled. But Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? He says, believe in God. Believe also 
in me. You see, faith in God and faith in Christ is essential to overcoming our troubles. That is, their person, their character, their attributes, and who they are, and also what they have done for us already in Christ. That's why we don't have to be troubled overly so in times of difficulty. Faith is the way to overcome the trouble of the heart, trusting in the precious promises of God that he has given us, that every one of those we can take to the bank, they are sure based on his character. He is a God who does not lie. Let me read the text again. I'm just going to read verses 14 and 15, though our focus will primarily be on verse 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would give us understanding into this beautiful psalm this day. Lord, we confess that all too often we, we balk when trouble comes. We want to run. We want to hide. We want to fix it in our own way, before we even call upon you, the sovereign one, the one who is orchestrating providence and ordering it, oh Lord, forgive us for such pride and humble us and increase our faith to know that even in the, when it's dark in the noonday and the trials have come upon us with such um, intensity that we should call to you and have that promise that you will indeed deliver us. So Lord, Give us understanding now in Jesus' name, amen. As I said earlier, when these troubles come, why is it so important to redeem these opportunities? It's an opportunity to cry out to God and then to receive the grace of God manifested to us in different ways. It's an opportunity for God himself to demonstrate his grace and his deliverance and and teach you the lessons that you need to know to make you a stronger Christian, to form, as it were, that character that's essential and necessary for us as we live the Christian life. And it's a reminder, just as we're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 in regards to Christ being our great high priest, it's a reminder that we have direct access to God as the people of God. Hebrews 4 and verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. That last phrase, in time of need, could be translated in the nick of time. In other words, we're commanded to come, come to the throne of grace, come boldly into his presence, and he will, he will answer in just the right time and give you the mercy that is necessary. So as I mentioned last week, the Psalms are very practical for us. That's why most Bible reading calendars, if you follow one of those, typically has wisdom literature just parallel with if you're reading the new or you're reading the old, intersperse your devotions with Psalms. If you're reading the Gospels, read the Gospels, but then add in a Psalm or two each day. Dwell on the Psalms. Pick one or two days a week, maybe the weekend, where you just immerse yourself in the Psalms and do your other reading Monday through Friday. I'm making an assumption there that you're reading your Bible. (laughs) I hope that most of you are. I know that most of you are, but I hope that all of you are. For the Word is living and active. Well, I'm just going to build very quickly the broader context of this Psalm because I think it's often overlooked. 
There, there's various phrases in here that, that we're familiar with. Now every beast of the field, of the forest is mine, the, uh, the cattle of a thousand hills, and you hear that verse, and, and so forth. And there's various verses, the verse we're looking at today. But I want you to see something here, that this is a psalm of judgment. It's a psalm of judgment against the Jews for their formality and their hypocrisy, and it's actually a summons to come to judgment. And this text before us today is a beautiful promise that's capsulized, surrounded by these, this picture of judgment and God's fury and his anger towards hypocrites and formalists. So let's walk through it very, very quickly just to build this, and then we're going to zoom in on verse 15. In verses 1 to 3, what we have here is the coming judge. It's a summons to all. Look at it with me. The mighty one, the God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before him. And it is very tempestuous around him. That's a picture of, that's a a furious picture if you think about that. First of all, the the three names for God that are stacked up there, it's El, Elohim, and Jehovah. A valid translation would be the mighty, the awesome God. Yes, our covenant God. Yeah, he's the one that's summoning people to come to judgment. God reveals himself to mankind in the fire and in the tempest. It reminds me of right before the giving of the law of God in Exodus 19. uh, On the mountain there, Moses comes down from the mountain. The people are there. And in verse 16, it says, So it came about on the third day that when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning flashes and thick cloud upon the mountain and very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord God came down from Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and so forth. This became so terrifying to the people that they said, We don't want to meet this God. You go and intercede for us. So that's the picture, verses 4 to 6. He calls all the earth to be witnesses. Look at it quickly with me. He summons the heavens above the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So once again here, a picture, a summons, and notice in verse 5, call together my godly ones. What that means is those who by covenant are related to me, call them together. They are the ones that will be examined it reminds me of 1 Peter 4. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel? So brethren, the whole psalm as a whole is a clarion call upon the people of God to examine themselves in the sincerity of their worship. And I'll develop that, verses 7 to 13. There's two indictments that are given against the Jews who profess to worship the Lord. In verses 7 to 19, as one commentator called it, we have the mechanically pious 
or another way to put it is the formalist. The one that can formally, externally go through with the worship, maybe light a candle or whatever, you know, kind of thing, and, and kind of externally do that, but their heart is not engaged with what's going on. Some of us can fall into that, sing a familiar hymn that we know, and rather than meditating on the words and the, the potency of those words and the scripture that it's based upon and the God that we're singing to, we can just, we can parrot the words without any thought. So we need to be careful not to fall into formalism. Verse 7, hear my people and I will speak in Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, no male goats out of your folds. And then this whole, every uh, beast of the forest is mine, every bird on the mountain, everything that moves. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. The world is mine and all it contains, in verses 9 to 12 there. So his voice is the omniscient one. He's the judge. Uh, back to Exodus, it reminds me of how the law begins. I am the Lord your God. He's telling him who he is. So we need to beware of going through external formalities. Jesus, in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees thought they were worshiping God with all of their laws. The 613 additional laws thought they were worshiping um, Jehovah. And even as they would put Christ to death, they thought they were worshiping. They were going through external formality. And though they're guilty of huge sins, of course they kept up with the external washings. Mark 9. And verses 9 to 12 really say that God does not need anything from us whatsoever. And so we are not those that are to put confidence in any external service. Formalism without heartfelt worship makes sacrifices an abomination. The prophets say this again and again in Isaiah chapter 1. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of ram, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. You see, God had had enough with the outside formalism, without the heart being engaged and just going through the motions. And then verses 14 and 15, which we're going to come back to again, demonstrate the way worship should be done, especially verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. And then the command with a promise in verse 15. In verses 16 to 21, they're charged with hypocrisy. Just look at verse 16 and 17. But to the wicked, God says, you, what right have you to tell my statutes and take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, you're taking my covenant in your mouth and you're professing to worship Jehovah. But then at the end of the day, you're just throwing those words behind you and going your own way. God hates that type of hypocrisy. It's examined throughout the word of God again and again. We just read in Romans chapter 2, that latter part. But if you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. There's too many that boast in what they do and what they have accomplished. Um, The formalists need to realize you have to worship in spirit and truth and the hypocrite that God indeed is moral and will repay. It goes on, the psalm goes on. They've broken the sixth, the seventh, or the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth commandment. 
And we read it from Romans 2. You who preach do not steal, do you steal? You who preach do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Well, that's what they were guilty of. And we're going to come back, come back to the last two verses um, a little later. So, brethren, this is the context in which we find our text today. Nestled in the midst of a summons to judgment, the holiness of God, pure worship, uh, the formalists and the, the hypocrite nestled in there is, is an encouragement to worship God properly, to offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, to pay your vows of the Most High. And then this particular, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. We're going to look at this under three points. The command propounded, the deliverance promised, and the response presumed. First of all, the command, call upon the Lord when trials come. Oh, brethren, prayer is a useful activity for such sinful and dependent people such as us. We need to have access to God because we are so weak. Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. We read, Judd read for us in Psalm 77 and verse 2, very similar. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. And so what a gracious invitation you have set before you today. Call upon me in the day of your trouble. Think of what trouble you may have right now in your mind. Think of what troubles may come your way this next week. And the encouragement and the confidence that you have to call upon him. Verse 15 is very connected with verse 14. I'm not going to read that again. So to call is a shout out of supplication. As I said, this is a command. Call. Call upon who? Call upon your friend, call upon your spouse, call upon your teacher, call upon your checkbook, your credit card to go shopping. No, call upon who? Me, Jehovah God, your covenant God, who cares for you and who understands more than any of those other people or running to any other escape of media or whatever. Call upon me. Psalm 60, verse 11, Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is vain. See, true deliverance comes from God. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Trouble is the day of distress, the day of anxiety, the day when, you have, when the phone rings and you receive terrible news about a loved one, or when you've been in a terrible auto accident and you're barely able to breathe. There's been several fatalities just yesterday on our freeways here in San Diego County. You know, when anxiety, when trouble comes upon you, and it comes upon you all too often like a storm, something that you least expect, that's when it comes. It's the opposite of having salvation and deliverance and peace. And so the times of trouble are the times of anxiety and distress and, and disorder and these types of things. The times of need, Spurgeon says, call upon me. We ought not need the exhortation. It should be our constant habit all day long and every day. What a mercy to have liberty to call upon God. What wisdom to make good use of it. How foolish to go running about to men. The Lord invites us to lay our case before him, and surely he will not hesitate to do so.
If you have trouble, call upon the Lord. Call upon Him. He will hear you. It's an unconditional promise. Call upon Him in any trouble, any type of trouble. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, before His passion, during Passion Week, was troubled and distressed. And what did He do? In Mark 14, we see Him in the Garden of Gethsemane in verse 33. And He took with Him Peter, James, and John. And He began to be very distressed and troubled. And He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here with me and keep watch. And he went a little bit beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible that this hour might pass from him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you to remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Our Savior and his humanity understood what it was like to call out to his father in times of distress, in times of weightiness and discouragement, and he did so unhindered. Brethren, difficulties and trials, and this is not the way to build a mega church. let me tell you. Difficulties and trials are good for you. No? What's, what's the popular message? God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and never sick and all of that. People flock to that, Right? No, trials are good for us. They shake our composure. They, they rattle us from our presumption. They, 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 they get us a realigned focus to God. And it's these very difficulties and trials that drives us to God so that we would have a perpetual communion with Him. It's a sure fact. Just look at your life. We pray more during difficult times than in times of prosperity. When everything is going well, prayer life can begin to kind of weaken and not be as urgent. But when things, when the, when, the, when the fire's hot and you feel the heat, you're on your knees a lot, aren't you? I think we all can agree with that. In Isaiah 26, we know this verse, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. Why? Because he trusts in you. Just a few verses later, O oh Lord, they sought you in distress, and they could only whisper a prayer. How quickly the steadfast of mind can be shaken into weakness to where we can barely utter the whisper of a prayer. Spurgeon says again in regards to this difficult times, hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity. How many stars, little children, if we go outside right now, how many stars can you see in the sky? Not very many, but when it's very dark and there's not a full moon like there is tomorrow or the next day, you see a lot of stars. Or you go camping or you go to the mountains, you see a lot of stars. And so hope itself is like a star. It can't be seen in the sunshine of prosperity, but only discovered in the night of adversity. Afflictions are often the black foils in which God doth set the jewels for his children's graces to make them shine better. Sometimes God chastises us to get us to call upon Him. He'll turn up the heat. He'll afflict us, sometimes for our own sin, as we looked at last week in Psalm 38. Think of Jonah. He receives the call, right, as a prophet of God to go where? Nineveh, right? Okay, some of you know the story. Uh, To go to Nineveh, what, what does he go? Which direction does he go? 
Complete opposite, right? So he's complete opposite. He's running from God. Um, ultimately, the pagan soldiers find out and discover that this storm's come upon us because of something, and they went down and woke him up. He's thrown overboard. He's left for drowning, but God in his mercy, what, sends a great fish. And then Jonah is in the belly of the great fish. And what do we have recorded in Jonah chapter 2? One of the most beautiful prayers found in Scripture. Now, was Jonah praying those prayers as he's on his way to Tarsus or whatever? No. When he was on the ship, was he praying? No. God had to send affliction, discipline to him to set him right. In fact, it's an interesting thing. Before that trial, we have no record of Jonah praying in the Bible. Not that there's a whole lot of the Bible given to Jonah, but you don't see Jonah praying in chapter 1, or, or, but you see him in chapter 2, to where at the begin, what does he say? Salvation is of the Lord. He was humbled, and he learned that. Matthew Henry says, afflictions are sent for this end, to bring us to the throne of grace, to teach us to pray, and to make the word of God's grace more precious to us. So that's the command propounded. But now look with me next at the deliverance promised. The next part of the verse. And I shall rescue you. Call upon me in that day, that day of trouble, and know that I shall rescue you. Now already maybe some of you are saying, well, wait a minute. I remember a time when I prayed about something and God didn't rescue me. The way God rescues, the way God delivers doesn't always look the same for all of us. And we're going to unpack this a little bit. First of all, God himself has made this promise. God alone is the one that will deliver you. Notice as we, I was reading verses 7 and 8 and 9, there's lots of first person. I will speak. I will not reprove. I know every bird and so forth and so on. And here it's I shall rescue you. God himself makes the promise. He alone is the one who can keep it. He will deliver you. That is, those who are believers, those who are in Christ, those who are trusting him. He will deliver you. Put your name in there. He will deliver you, Caleb, in the day of trouble. He will deliver you, so forth and so on. Put your name in there. It's something you can take to the bank. Now, the rebel, the one who has not bowed the knee to Christ, may call for rescue in the day of trouble, but if it's not a call of repentance unto salvation, God does not hear the wicked. And so those who are outside of Christ don't think that this is a promise that you can take and, and, and pull as like an ace in the hole out every time you've got a trial or difficulty. No, you must first come and covenant with God and trust His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has promised this, brethren, and so it is certain. Hebrews 6.18, so that by two unchangeable things it is impossible for God to lie. For that we who have taken refuge have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is before us. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? No, he'll make it good. Reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, seek, and you shall find. Here, call, you shall be rescued. So let's 
unpack this a little bit, brethren. Listen, how does God deliver us? And, and when does he deliver us? And, and all of these things are, are moving targets. Um, and so there's not a one set thing. Let me just try to illustrate it like this. Let's say that in the workplace, you have a coworker, and that coworker is a thorn in the flesh, ridiculing you for your faith, trying to make you look bad in front of the boss, and you've, you've called out to God in the day of your trouble. You come home from another work day exhausted, not only from the work that you do, but from this light persecution, and you call out to him. Well, how might God answer that? Well, he could transfer you to another job or to another department from within the company, um, he could move the coworker to another job, right? So there could be that, that scenario going on. Or he might save the coworker, right, so that he's not uh, doing that. So there's all kinds of different scenarios that can happen for God to rescue and deliver you out of that difficulty. We have the record in 2 Corinthians 12, and I wish we had time to turn to it, but I won't for the sake of time, where, where Paul has a thorn in the flesh, And he's asking God three times to remove it. Do you know there's no record here that says, God removed the thorn? (laughs) Do you remember that text? Why don't you turn there with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Something happens that's much more beautiful. Paul's perspective is changed so that he can say, For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. Remember the Lord says in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected and weakless. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. How did God deliver him? By giving him a new perspective. That when I am weak, then I am strong, because it's Christ's strength through me. Sometimes this deliverance is very immediate. Here's... Peter, on the water, it's the Lord over here, and he's walking. And what happens? He takes his eyes off the Lord. Maybe he looks at a flash of lightning or something and begins to sing, Lord, save me! What happened? Jesus' hand was right there and saved him and pulled him out of the water. It was immediate. Sometimes it's long. Sometimes it's our our entire life. I was reminded of William Carey, the Baptist missionary, who started, really, with the help of others, a Baptist missionary society in the 1800s who went to India to labor. And, and did you know that his wife became insane on the mission field and everyone was encouraging him, send her back to England, put her in an asylum. You'll get so much more work done here. And he took the responsibility to keep and to care for her within the family home, even though the children were exposed to her rages and so forth because he felt that that was his responsibility. Well, eventually she died. And, and there's a very beautiful uh, uh, entry in his diary that I did, forgot to put in my notes, actually, but, but it wasn't that I'm glad she's gone. It was, it was that God has heard my prayer, gave me grace to sustain through this, and, and so forth. Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We must trust in him to bring about deliverance at the perfect time. Think of Daniel 3. Remember the youth night a couple weeks ago? Some of you youth were uh, participated in that. Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not bow down to the 90-foot Costco pizza, I mean the 90-foot image that was erected. Um, for those of you who weren't here, that was the image that we came, they came up with. 
not we, <laughs> but, uh, but the idea was worshiping and bowing down to something other than God. And these three young men would not do it. And listen to the text in chapter 3 and verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. The fire had been heated up seven times as hot. What do they say to Nebuchadnezzar? (laughs) If it be so, our God is able to deliver us from the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. For even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you know the story. They're in the fire. There's one like the Son of Man that's in there with them. They come out. They don't even smell like smoke and so forth and so on. God preserved them and delivered them. A beautiful story, isn't it? How was Noah delivered? He believed the promise of God (laughs) that I'm going to flood the earth. And he spent a hundred years building an ark. And he was delivered, him and his family members, out of the ark. Sometimes God's deliverance is a deliverance out of this world. Sometimes it's a transport directly to heaven, leaving this life. In fact, in Hebrews 11, you have the hall of faith there, which I'm not going to read all of that. But in Hebrews 11, you have all these various uh, situations, Noah, Abraham, um, Moses, um, and so forth and so on. But look at verse 37. Some were stoned, sawn in two, they were tempted, and they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom this world is not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval by their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. God delivered them into his presence. When we're in the midst of a terrible situation and and we're praying and we say, well, why didn't God deliver? Why didn't God heal? And and sometimes it's hard to understand. I remember William Borden, the the heir to the Borden milk money, and he's worth millions at around 1900, went to Princeton, went to Yale and then to Princeton, and decided he wanted to give away the money and go and serve and uh, be a missionary to Muslims in northern China. Well, as he's going forth, he's going to Egypt to be trained to learn the language. He catches meningitis and dies at 25. Of course, the wires, you know, it's wired home because everybody knew who he was and so forth. And people say, well, what a waste why wasn't he healed? Why, why, why didn't God use the means that were there and so forth and so on? No, God delivered him. It's just not the way that we would have wanted or the family would have wanted. What is better, a temporal deliverance or a permanent deliverance into glory? And this is what our church has experienced over this past 12 months as we have seen three that we love dearly. Uh, for Amanda, for three years, three and a half years, praying that God would heal her. God answered so many prayers through that, where the, the symptoms would be alleviated, to where the cancer symptoms were not spreading as quickly, and so forth and so on. And, and ultimately, in the end, it was God's will that she be taken. For John Heisman, the same thing. Two years of, remember those praises, it would come. 
the oncologist is baffled. There's no more tumors in his lungs. They don't know what happened to him. And then a few months later, six months later, they would come back, and this went back and forth. Ultimately, God took him in Don McNeil as well. We saw victories, and his life extended from when he was first diagnosed along the way. And ultimately, it was God's plan to deliver him into his own care and glory. So, brethren, don't armchair quarterback and think that I'm the one that knows best how God ought to deliver in my situation. That's not your prerogative. You're weak. You have a sinful mind, sinful propensities. How do we know better than the Almighty? And so this is where we trust in the promises that our God will do what is right. And he always does. That's why we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Live, live to the fullest while you have it today. Live for Christ. But realize, dying is gaining. So we've seen the command propounded, the deliverance promised, and now lastly, the response presumed. Your duty is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Look at what it says here. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Psalmist says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Keep a prayer journal or keep a sharp mind and remember how God has delivered you and how God has worked with you over the years, how God has been patient with you. The word for honor is kavod in the original. It's the same word that means glory. It speaks of God's glory sometimes. It means weighty in in the original. And so it's a weighty thing. You will glorify God. Me. Don't put confidence in the means of deliverance. For example, if you're diagnosed with cancer and you receive six months of chemo and now you're cancer free, don't say, Pray, I got the best oncologist. I'll tell you, the team just did wonders and great. And you forget all about God. God's the one that used those means. So, secondary causes, secondary means are not to be embraced. It is ultimately God who has delivered you. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes. Down from above, from the Father of lights. Anything that you have has come from Him. Therefore, He gets the glory. So offer to God your spiritual sacrifices, a vow of a personal holy life because you've been changed by the gospel. Psalm 56, verse 12, Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. I think it was Piper that said, we get the help, God gets the glory. And that's how we need to think. All too often, you and me are like the nine lepers. We receive a healing, we receive a deliverance, we we see God's mighty hand working in our lives, and we're like the nine just going our own way. Jesus says in Luke 17, he answered and said, we're not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was not no one found to to return to give glory to God except for this foreigner? We ought to be those who offer sacrifice of praise, as it says um, in Hebrews 13, continually offer a sacrifice of praise. We're to be those who, as it says again and again in the Psalms, sing to the Lord a new song. Have you ever just been filled with the joy of the Lord and you just start singing a, a, a hymn that's not printed anywhere because it's literally just because it's coming right from your heart? That's a beautiful thing. That's a wonderful thing. The Lord is pleased with such things. 
to give him thanksgiving for the mercies of his redemption, his patience with you. You see, the immature may be delivered in some way, but they forget God. They go their way quickly. Oh, we ought to remember. We ought to be in a habit of praise, brethren. In Job in 27, it says, Will God hear his cry when distress calls upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty when things are well? Uh, that's my, when things are well, that's the idea. Will he call on God at all times? We're to be those that call on him often. The demoniac in Mark chapter 5, an amazing testimony of a man that was just completely, the, the, the person you would think least likely to be saved. He would win the award, right? He's saved, and he's begging to come with Jesus. Jesus says, no, there's better work for you to do. Go and tell what God has done for you. And in 520 of Mark, it says, he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. So, brethren, we have the command propounded, the promise assured to us, and also our response, our duty So just a couple of points of application, and we'll end. Well, first of all, just a side note. Praise God for the access we have to God in prayer. That there is a high priest that is ready to hear our cries at any given time, and to make use of that often. Arrow prayers through the day, yes and amen. But set aside a time of communion with God. Reflect on the attributes of God. Reflect on the reality of your union with Christ, that nothing can break that, that you are eternally secure. Use your memory, first of all, to recall God's deliverances of you. Use your memory or a journal, whatever you have to do, to record how God has delivered you, from the smallest to the greatest, to not forget about these things, to go in the midst of while you're waiting for an answer for a current trial, reflect back on how God has delivered you again and again in the past and the manifold ways in which he has done that. In times of sickness or disease, discouragement, depression, conflict, all of these things, cry out to him. The condition for deliverance is that you would cry out. So don't say, oh, God's sovereignty knows all things. I don't have to articulate it. He sees. No. He wants us to call out. We're commanded to call out, cry out to him. Lay your case before him. You're not informing God, but you're proving your heart to God that you believe he is the one that can deliver. Call upon him. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, it will be opened to you. Jesus turns none away who come to him. Think, just read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Go home and read them. Can you find chapter and verse? Well, somebody came and he turned them away, right? No. There's those that, that come, the lepers, the, the, the diseased that he even touches and heals, the sick, the needy, the hungry. He doesn't turn any away. God is a refuge and strength, strength a very present help in time of trouble. A very present help in time of trouble. So call upon him. Secondly, you need a biblical perspective. Trials come to us for our own good, to build character in us. 
Some would say that, well, no, a trial's come upon us. God must have turned his back. No, that's bad theology. No, God is sending this because he wants to refine me and strengthen me for his greater glory. It's an invitation to draw near to God. It's an invitation to humble yourself and express once again your weak dependence upon a mighty God and to call out to him. So expect trouble. Get the right perspective. Expect trouble. Expect him to deliver you through that trouble. Prosperity and ease is not the place to grow in godliness. Most often. (laughs) That's why the persecuted church, that's why places where there's difficulty, there's a much greater heightened seriousness to serving the Lord. You see, the times of prosperity and ease lead all too often to what? Pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. And what do I need God for? I'm doing pretty good right here all by myself. Mr. Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember that? (laughs) As he uh, scoured the fields, eating like a beast for the next year after that, God humbled him. And he will humble you if you allow your heart to be lifted up before him. David, times of prosperity. Ooh, I'm kicking back up here. Look at the young lady down there. Adultery, and then, whoop, i got to cover that one up. Murder. He should have been out busy doing what he was called to do as a king on the battlefield. Listen, expect trouble. George Swinock, in an eloquent Puritan way, says, A sanctified person is like a silver bell. The harder he is smitten, the better he sounds. See, the more trials... And even the intense trial, more intense trials that come will reflect in us greater praise to him and greater usefulness in the kingdom. Third and last application, and this is broad, this is taking the whole psalm as a whole. Do you worship God in sincerity of heart? Examine yourself. Maybe even during this sermon, you've had wondering thoughts of your appointments that you have tomorrow, the food that you want to eat, the, what's cooking at home right now, the shopping that you want to do, the, all of these various things, the people you want to talk to after we, the benediction's given. I've got to go talk to this. Guard your mind. Try to keep out those wandering thoughts. Look in verse 22 and 23 just to round out the psalm. Now consider this, you who forget God. Uh, King James says, lest you forget God. Or I tear you to pieces, and there will be none to deliver. Notice the contrast there. Those who forget God, there will be none to deliver you. And then it ends in verse 23. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. We must worship God in sincerity of heart as um, there was a typo in the uh, order of worship, but verse 29, Judd was reading what he was told to read, but Romans 2 and 28, 29, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one what? Inwardly, a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In a couple weeks, we'll be to the part in Pilgrim's Progress in our community group where formalists and hypocrisy come upon the scene. For those of you not familiar, I'm just going to take a minute to explain this. 
Formalist Christian's going along the way. He's converted. He's left the house of interpreter. He's on the narrow way. And suddenly two men come plopping over the wall called the wall of salvation. And he begins to dialogue with them. Well, wait a minute. It, evangelist told me I had to go through the wicked gate and had to go to the cross to get rid of the burden of my sin. Who are you just rolling up over the wall and taking a shortcut here? And this dialogue goes on, and, and it's, it's very interesting. Formalists and hypocrisy say, well, we were born in the land of vain glory, and we are going for praise to Mount Zion. And Christian says, well, why did you not come in at the gate, which stands at the beginning of the way? Know you not that it is written that he that comes not by the door but climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber. And the dialogue goes on and on. And you see how they're just putting confidence in their formality and in their hypocrisy rather than God's way of going through the narrow gate and looking to Christ. Well, if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, you, this judge that I began with, this mighty one who's summoning the earth as a judge that you will stand before and judgment answering for every one of your sins, and if you don't repent, spending an eternity in hell, a place of everlasting torment, of gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die, where the flame is not quenched, a place, a, a terrible place that we would not desire our, our, our worst enemy to go to. And so I beg you, flee to Christ, confess your sin before him, and, 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 and run to him as the only one that can ultimately deliver you from the plague of your sin. Jesus died for sinners. Don't harden your heart. Don't shove your hand. And you young people say, oh, I'm going to be okay because mom and dad's a Christian. I, I know how to grab onto their, their coattail and I'll, I'll get in somehow. Foolishness. You each need to repent for yourselves before God. And you may stand before him sooner than you would desire. So do it today. He's a loving God. He's a patient God. Call upon him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the trouble that you bring into our lives because we know that it awakens us from our slumber, from our carnality. It awakens us from our foolishness. And so, Lord, we give you praise for that. We thank you that we have access to you, that we can call upon you. We thank you for the promise that when we do call, you will answer. And, Lord, help us to honor and glorify you, just as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God. And Lord, we want to do that, and we want to do that well. So be with us now, we pray. Help us to meditate on the words that we have heard and to apply them to our lives to the end that you would receive the glory and that we would grow in our Christian character and in our sanctification. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our responsive hymn is found in the Red Trinity Hymnal. We're going to sing together, It Is Well With My Soul. It's number 691. And I just wanted to give a couple words of introduction before we sing.